So live, we like live, don't we? So have you noticed all of the remaking of the Disney animated pictures into live action? That's how much we like live. And I think it started way back with Snow White. Do you remember a while back there were two versions of the Snow White retold as live action and two, they couldn't have been different, more different from one another. One was Mirror Mirror and it was really quirky, sort of family friendly and I endured that with my then teenage daughters. Anybody see that one? And then there was the kind of the more sinister one, Snow White and the Huntsman. Anybody see that one? Okay, we like sinister in here. Okay, that's good. So the, again, they couldn't have been more different than one another. But what's actually the most interesting version of Snow White is the original Brother Grimm. Does anybody know the original story? Okay, yeah. So you know it's both quirky and sinister, right? So it starts off very similar to all the retellings of Snow it begins much the same with a vain stepmother murderously jealous of Snow White, and so she hires a huntsman to take her out to the forest and kill her and bring back evidence that she's dead. But of course, the huntsman can't kill beautiful Snow, and so he releases her, and she finds a place in the forest to hide with seven dwarfs. But in Grimm's tale, this is where the story kind of departs, when the stepmother discovers that Snow White is still alive, she actually tries to kill Snow three times. And the apple, the famous poisoned apple, is actually the third attempt to kill Snow. She dresses like a beggar woman, and she goes and begs and offers Snow the apple. Snow takes a bite, and it is poisonous, and she goes into what is called a st state of suspended animation. She's like, mostly dead, but not all the way dead, if you know Princess Bride. She's mostly dead, but not oh, totally dead, probably what we would consider almost like a coma. So the dwarfs, believing she is fully dead, put her in a glass coffin because they do not want to cover up her beauty, and they put her out in the forest. And this is where I'm going to read from the ending of the Grimm's original story. Time passes, and a prince traveling through the land sees Snow White. He strides to her coffin and, enchanted by her beauty, instantly falls in love with her. The dwarfs succumb to his request to let him have the coffin. And as his servants carry the coffin away, they stumble on some roots. This causes the piece of poisoned apple to dislodge from Snow White's throat, awakening her. The prince then declares his love for her, and soon a wedding is planned. Okay, so Disney invented the kiss. Snow White comes alive by a Heimlich maneuver, by a root. <laughs> Pretty crazy. So the prince rescues Snow's lifeless body, but it isn't until something is dislodged from deep within her does she come alive and enter into a relationship with him, and a wedding is planned. By surrendering something deep inside of her, Snow gets more than a rescue. Because she got more than a kiss, she enters a whole new life. And I think the story of Snow and other fairy tales fascinate us about princes because they point to the prince of peace, the son of the king, and the, and the true stories that we have in the gospel accounts, like the account of Jairus and the bleeding women that we're going to look at this morning. It's told in three gospels because we do like to rehear these stories. And through these lives that intentionally intersect, we're going to find two individuals who are enduring life-choking situations, life, things that are happening in their life that is literally choking them to death. 
And as Jesus is traveling, they surrender their situations to him. But by coming to Jesus for help, they get more than a rescue. They are offered a relationship with the living God because that is why he came. But to enter into that relationship with the living God, they're going to have to give more than they planned. As Tim Keller writes, be aware when you go to Jesus for help, he will both give to and get, you will both give to and get from him far more than you bargained for. Be aware when you go to Jesus for help, you will both give to and get from him far more than you bargained for. And this is exactly what we're going to see in the life of Jairus and the bleeding woman. Um, if you're able, do you want to stand with me as I read just the first section of this account? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power in it. Thank you that um, this moment and this space that we're in right now is, comp- is in no way dependent upon me, but 100% dependent on you. Um, you want to meet with us, and you want to speak to us through your word. And I pray, Father, that... Um, we would surrender whatever it is you would like us to surrender, even right now, to be fully engaged in your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell on his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and, had, and it was no better but rather grew worse. When she heard the reports about Jesus and came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. You can have a seat. So again, from these two life-choking situations, we're going to find that when we look to Jesus for help, we will release more more than we planned, and we will receive more than we think possible. And the two timeless truths we're going to see in here that you saw on your outline is that life will choke us, each one of us, but there's a love that chases us. So first, life will choke us. Both the crushing and the chronic events happen. If we live life in this broken world long enough, we will have both chronic and crushing events that come into our life. And here we see this precious daughter, 12 years of delight, is ending for Jairus. By age and gender, she's vulnerable, she's innocent, she's pure culturally. This is probably around the time of puberty. She's getting ready to be given in marriage. And in ancient Judaism, your life didn't begin until you were married. You were like, mostly did until you were married. (laughs) So she has everything ahead of her. Everything that Jairus holds dear is slipping through his hands. His hopes and his dreams are dying before his very eyes. And he is certain she will be dead if Jesus doesn't come, and if Jesus doesn't come fast. And isn't that like sudden tragedy? It does feel like a glass coffin, doesn't it? Everything you're experiencing is filtered through what's happening in your life. 29 years ago, a pediatric neurologist told us that our daughter would never be normal. Her brain was not growing. And that became a sudden crushing event in which everything was filtered through. All of my hopes and dreams for my child died. My hopes and my dreams and my plans for me died. 
all of my life, again, was viewed through tears and fears. Sadness, deep sadness. And I know many of you know this. If you've lived long enough, something has happened in your life that has crushed you. An unexpected diagnosis, a betrayal, a sudden betrayal, death, financial devastation, illnesses that come and crush fast. Crushing situations come to us all. Jesus told us in Matthew 5:45, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Through crushing, though crushing happens to all of us, when it does, we are often surprised if we're just. Think about this. Jairus is just Jairus. He is a just man. He's a synagogue ruler. His whole life is dedicated to helping other people worship the living God. He's prominent. He's religious. He's head of the local Jewish worshiping committee, community. And it would be understandable for him to say, why me? I remember thinking that very thing. Why me? As I was working with teen moms at the time and how wanting to help them have healthy children as best they could, I got this crushing diagnosis of my own daughter. Why me, Lord? Falling on Jesus, Jairus cast aside respected dignity for his time. This was unheard of that he would respond this way. He is desperate. His girl will die if Jesus doesn't come and come fast. But for the sake of Jairus, for the sake of his daughter, and for the sake of the crowd, Jesus won't be hurried. For in the crowd is somebody else's daughter whose life has been sucked out of her for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. This woman is not in a dire, crushing situation, but she is in a chronic one. Twelve years of living through cycles of hope, disappointment, and despair. Most of her adult life, likely since puberty, she's been unclean culturally, anemic physically, emotionally, relationally. Imagine how she even looked physically. Twelve years of losing blood and no, no social interaction. She was probably never married, or if she was married, she would have been childless, and that would have been grounds for divorce. And she's spiritually unclean. The Levitical law is very clear that a woman who is issuing blood is unclean, and you cannot touch her. And if you do, you are ceremonially unclean for a seven-day probation period. So no one's going to want to go near her. So each day, each week, each month, no cure to give her the life back that she longed for. In fact, the cures have harmed her. They have depleted her resources, and they have left her completely destitute. Imagine the cures that she endured from the Talmud. This is the central text for Jewish civil and ceremonial law, and here are the, some of the things that she would have gone through. Drink a goblet of wine mixed with powdered rubber, aluminum, and garden crocuses. Okay, so if that doesn't work, then you can have a dose of Persian onions cooked in wine, administered while commanding, arise from your blood. Or if that doesn't work, sudden shock. We'll try that. If that doesn't work, carrying the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain cloth. And on and on it goes. Can you imagine? And each of these costing her time, energy, hope, money, why? Doesn't it all sound superstitious? 
Why does she do it? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in such a crushing situation that you'll try anything to get back the life that you want? As a mom of a child with special needs, I have been given a lot of crazy remedies, some of them actually spiritual, that are superstitious, and some of them physiological. And I chase down a lot of them because it's that desperate. We do it because we're desperate to get our life back. We will do anything. Superstition has left her financially, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally completely ruined and depleted. Unendingly alone, she has no advocate. She has no just gyrus fighting for her. She's alone. And again, as a first century Palestinian woman, this would mean she was completely destitute and her future actually looked worse than her present. She has lost everything that makes you want to get out of bed in the morning. Anything that would make her want to live, health, resources, family, human connection, worship. This is her glass coffin. She is filtering her life through chronic, physical, relational pain. Can you relate? Life in a broken world. There are a lot of things that deplete us, aren't there? There are diseases of the heart, diseases of the mind, diseases of the body that deplete us. Relationships of bitterness, betrayal, unforgiveness, all of these can deplete us. And this bleeding woman, she reaches for Jesus. Sometimes that's the last thing we want to do, isn't it? If we're honest. She reaches for Jesus from behind. She casts aside her outcast behavior, which means she's not to touch anyone. She pushes through, and she risks defiling the man of God. She pushes through every barrier. She trusts that touching just Jesus' hem, she could be cured. Boy, she illustrates what it means to really push, what it means to be so courageous. But when we make the difficult move towards Jesus, we will offer more than we planned to receive more than we think possible. Because while life will choke us, there is a love that wants to chase us. I want to pick up again from Mark 5:29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Love chases the chronic. Jesus is not going to let her touch and run. No way. Coming for Jesus for help meant having his very life poured into her. Can you imagine what that felt for her? Jesus releases his very own power to heal her. This word power is where we get our word dynamite. It's used of the Holy Spirit in the rest of the New Testament, but this is the first account. The first account of the power of the Holy Spirit entering into a person is a marginalized, destitute, sick woman. What does that say about the heart of our Jesus? Luke 8:47 says, When she saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, 
declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Her touch was life-transforming. Fearful, she hides, though, until she's exposed, until she's outed by Jesus, right? She wanted to touch and run. Then she outs herself. Why does she out herself? Why does she tell her whole story? Is she caught and afraid? That'd probably be me. Has she felt his life flow into her and wants to understand it? One thing we can tell from the text is that she knows he's close to God. And she, because he knows she touched him in this crowd. So she tells her whole story, the entire truth, in the presence of everyone. And what do you think is happening in the crowd as she's telling her story? What's the crowd doing? Backing away. Because she's unclean. And as the crowd backs away, what is Christ doing? He moves in closer. He interrupts her shame. And that is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to interrupt our shame with the good news of God's love. She tells her whole story, the entire truth. Jesus outed her to bring her in, to make clear to her that he is not the ash of an ostrich egg. He is not a rabbit's foot. He is the eternal Son of God sent to restore humanity, and he has come for her. God had sent her, sent Jesus to her for more than her situation. God sent Jesus to her to have a relationship with her. He calls her daughter. This is the first account of anyone being called daughter in the New Testament by Jesus. Again, a marginalized, unclean woman. Daughter. Your faith has made you well, Mark 5:34. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You have a father. You have a father greater than Jairus. And this touches from him. And it's intended not to just heal your blood, but to change your life. It is life restoring. Many people had touched Jesus. Imagine a throng means they're all around him, right? So many people had been bumping into Jesus and maybe even reaching out to touch him. But his power flowed through to her because she believed, because she had the courage to not just sit in her depletion and her ruin and push forward. She can now go in peace. Faith has dried up her blood, he says. No worries, it will come back. Because this is more than a rescue. It's a relationship with the living God. Healed of your disease, he's telling her, you don't need a seven-day cooling-off period. In fact, he's letting the crowd know they don't need a seven-day cooling-off period. Why? Because he is clean. Jesus is perfectly clean. And while he wasn't ashamed to be touched by someone unclean, that very touch made her clean. Because I am unashamed to be identified with you, you are clean. So the sudden crushing of my daughter's diagnosis led to a chronic life. She's 29 now. But in those early days, I searched the scriptures for some sort of cure. I not only searched medical help, but I also searched the scriptures for a promise, something I could claim, a prayer I could pray that would fix her. I treated God's word like a rabbit's foot. Aubrey was not only not fixed, she became more, she was, it became very clear that she would be more profoundly retarded than anyone expected. 
In desperation, I asked God to take her life or take my life because I didn't want to raise her. I had shame for her and for me. I couldn't accept her. I wouldn't accept her. There was no relief until one day I sensed God ask me to ask him to be healed of the need to have her healed, to be healed of the need to have a different life. And that was when power started to flow. It was still a process, but it was a shift. It was a process of a changed heart. I am not only not, only not ashamed of my daughter, I am so proud of her. And all the things that she has taught me about the love of God. My ugly heart towards the mentally disabled has changed. I am a living testament of the power of the Holy Spirit to change a life. But as one who is unclean is made clean, the bleeding woman, Jairus' clean daughter, is in danger of being made desperately unclean by death. Imagine Jairus' panic, his anxiety, his fear, and maybe his frustration. Come on, Jesus. Jairus is a religious leader, a powerful man, a man. And he's waiting on a marginalized, destitute, poor woman. And by the way, Jesus, this is what I would be saying if I was Jairus, hasn't she been like this for 12 years? What's another day? And do we need to hear her whole story? Can she just give us the Reader's Digest version? Oh, that really dated me, didn't it? Can she just give us a short version? Can't she wait another day? Couldn't you let her touch and run? Why a conversation? We are in a hurry, Jesus. But Jesus won't be hurried. Oh, Jairus, when I'm involved, there's no need to hurry. Tim Keller writes, it's not, I will not be hurried even though I love you. It's because it's, I will not be hurried because I love you. And my sisters, this is what I have learned. There are things only waiting can teach me about God's love. Anybody with me? There are things that only waiting has taught me about God's love. The delays are always love. Jairus' crushing pain cannot allow him to see this truth yet. Like the diseased woman, he is first going to have to surrender more than he planned. Not a sick daughter, but a dead daughter. Mark 5:35. while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So Jairus' fear becomes his reality. His nightmare ends in absolute destruction. But Jesus says to Jairus in 5:36, do not fear, only believe. Believe is the exact same word he used of faith in the Greek. When he told the woman, your faith had healed you, he is referring back to the woman when he's talking to Jairus. Do not fear, only believe. Love chases the chronic, and love will also chases the crush. Do not fear, only believe. Again, the same word. You did not lose just now, Jairus. You gained. You gained. You saw a living illustration of who I am and why I came. Surrender like the bleeding woman, more than you planned. And you too will receive more than you think possible. I need you to surrender something deep within you. Deep. Jairus, you too can become a living illustration of why I came. 
to restore humanity. I came for your situation, but more so, I came for you. And we see this in the last section, 38 to 42. There came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Taking her by the hand, Jesus is unashamed to be associated with an uncleanliness more than bleeding, death itself. Tenderly, he says to her, little girl, arise. And in that culture, that phrase actually was like, rise and shine, honey. Like you would wake up a little girl while she's sleeping. It was tender. And in Luke's account, it says her spirit returned to her. She was risen. Jesus released his power to raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Jairus, like the bleeding woman, would have had to surrender more than he planned, but he received more than he thought possible. But what's curious is why, did Jai, why was Jairus told, don't tell anybody, while the woman was told to tell her whole story? I think it's because the resurrection miracles are going to get Jesus murderously in trouble. The jealousy of the religious leaders will lead them to putting him on a cross. And Jesus wasn't done yet chasing those life is choking. The hour had not yet come for Jesus to surrender more than either the bleeding woman or Jairus thought possible. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus surrendered his time, his energy, his freedom, his reputation to intersect lives with the love of God. Each time, Jesus offered more than a rescue. He offered a relationship with the living God, a life-transforming relationship. But soon, as planned, Jesus would surrender everything he loved. He would surrender his very relationship with the Father, when he would be more than unclean, he would be made unclean by becoming sin for us. He would become sin, surrendering everything. So he could tell us, girl, arise. Because you and I need more than a kiss. Because the real apple stuck deep within our throat is the forbidden fruit of Eden. That Adam and Eve took in rebellion against God. A rebellion through which all of the chronic and crushing events of life have now entered in to this world, and they choke our lives. And unless it's dislodged, we will face the crushing death of eternal separation from God. The only way to dislodge this poison was for Jesus to surrender his life on a cross, to be made sin for us, and to give us his righteousness. At the cross, God declared his love for you and for me. His, we who trust in Christ are now his bride. 
And the resurrection tells us that the wedding is planned. And we are headed for a happily ever after we cannot even begin to fathom. But the beauty is, yes, amen. The beauty is, is that eternal life that we're anticipating, we get tastes and touches now. When our hearts are changed through the chronic and the crushing events of life, when Jesus miraculously supplies for us, we get to be living illustrations. Will we live by faith? Will we let the power of our life-choking situations, let his power flow through them? Until he returns, my sisters, I'm not going to make you any promises. We may have to wait for the miraculous healing we long for. I can't wait to hear my daughter talk in heaven and watch her dance. We may have to wait for complete physical, relational, emotional, and financial rescues, but we are promised something greater a relationship with the living God from which we now get to filter all of life. And he is the one who, when he takes our hand and says, little girl, arise, he promises never to let go of that hand. Romans 8 reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God and that God who gave his son for us, will he not also give us all things? Yes, the waiting always has purpose and the waiting always has power. So it is when life-choking situations ask for more than we planned that Jesus gives us more than we think possible. And then we get to be those living illustrations of who Jesus is and why he came. As people see our lives being restored, our humanity, they see the one, the love of God in Christ that came to chase us. I'd like to have you close your eyes. We have a couple minutes. And I'd love to have you just sit with Jesus. Is there something that's choking the life out of you? Or out of someone you love? Maybe it's relational. A broken relationship. Maybe it's a betrayal. Maybe it is a physical ailment. Will you speak that to Jesus? Reach for the hem. Father, I pray for my sisters, and I just thank you for their vulnerability, for their willingness to be here, and I pray for your life-transforming power to flow through each one of us. If there are any here that don't know you yet, Father, that that would be that first touch of belief. And Lord, I thank you that because of Jesus, the life-choking situations in our life that feel dead are not, they are merely asleep. And you are all about it. Lord, we want to believe. And will you help us in our unbelief? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.